1: Last Week in Brexit is brought to you by Pearson Solicitors and Financial Advisors, helping businesses and families for over a 100 years. And Greater Manchester Chambers of Commerce. Connect. Communicate. Create. Hello and welcome to Last Week in Brexit, the podcast for Remainers and Brexiteers alike. Join me, Jonathan Beardmore, every week alongside Alex Davis and Christian Spence as we try and guide you through the choppy waters of Brexit. Hello and welcome to Last Week in Brexit, the podcast all about, yep, Brexit. As always, we are here in the Greater Manchester Chamber of Commerce and I'm joined by Christian Spence. How
0: are you, Christian? I am well. Yes, it's just me this week. Yep. Alex Davis is where exactly? He is somewhere on a boat in the Ionian Ionian Sea, so uh, he's taking a well-deserved break this week.
1: Very Alex Davis. Absolutely. Uh, We've got plenty to talk about this week, mostly the Florence speech, but before we get into that, thank you for joining in on the conversation. Uh, On Twitter, I'm I'm at... at Jay Beardmore. Where are you Christian? You can find me at GMCC underscore Christian. And please please do leave those iTunes reviews. They are are very helpful and because of those reviews we have been listened to by more people than ever before last week which is always encouraging. Okay let's start with uh, the Florence speech.
0: Um, What were your main takeaways from this? My main takeaway really actually was one of Kind of dis- uh, unsurprised disappointment, mm. I guess. Um, we talked last week, of course. We were just a couple of uh, a couple of days before the speech when we did the last podcast. Um, that really, she needed to give the speech of her life because, and that's really driven by the fact. Barnier, Michel Barnier, who of course is the lead negotiator for for the European Union and all this, gave a speech to the Italian Parliament. Um, I think the day we, I think the day we recorded, or, or round about... Um, and he was really he was expressing his frustration essentially mm. you know, the, there was a timeline agreed to by us um, now of course, if you remember when the European Union set out its desired negotiating uh, timeline, it said, "We want three things dealt with first, the preliminary stuff the citizens rights, the divorce bill, the settlement as it 's been called." And the, and the Northern Ireland border, and we're not moving on to trade until, future relationship, until we've got those three sorted out. Mm-hmm. Um, cast our minds back again to around then, and we had David Davis, uh, Secretary of State for exiting the European Union and the UK government, say he was going to have the row of a lifetime uh, over summer, because he, wanted to, he said those two things have to happen together, discussing future relationship and those three things, um, and then capitulated. So we are where we are. So um, it was all a case of uh, we have to sort these things out first. And Barnier's speech before Theresa May spoke in Florence really re-emphasised all of this. We've yet to see significant movement. Um, We've yet to see on those papers where the UK has given some uh, kind of evidence really into it, there still aren't actual positions. So we talked several podcasts ago about the Northern Ireland border paper um, and the customs paper. They came out together from the UK neither of them actually set out positions they set out options Um, and essentially what the eu is saying is this is not what we want we need to know what you want what your desired solution is to this and then we will debate but to present us with a list doesn't actually help move things forward Um, so he'd set all this out he'd set out some realities uh, as well it's a good phrase actually we've seen a few of the other commentators kind of pick up on this in the last week reminding us that the UK has chosen to become a third country to the EU. Mm -hmm. Uh, That is its sovereign right and decision, and the EU respects it. Now, that kind of sounds obvious, but I think it's a useful reminder of the relationships between the UK and the EU. Because we're portraying the UK media that the EU's being, uh, being slow, it's dragging its heels, it's not doing what we want... The EU is treating this as you might expect, really, for a large, you know, large-scale bureaucracy, very legalistically. Yeah. Um, you have chosen to leave. How are you going to go about that? Uh, and it wants us to spell that out. Uh, so he was very clear about all that. Um, deals bend the future will only be will only happen, and we'll only discuss once we've got the first three things sorted out. We're not there yet. We're making good progress on civil rights civil rights, on citizens' rights. Yep, uh, But we clearly have no solution to uh, to those other two things. So there was a lot of pressure on me to give uh, a good speech which pushed back at this. Now, for me it didn't. No, For me it didn't do what it needed to do. But I guess there was a bit of an admission of reality in there. So first of all I guess we got a nice A-level essay on the benefits of the European Union, and I think you know, some of the commentators live tweeting. So, about 15 minutes in, this was basically she'd spelt out all the reasons why we should stay, um, you know, all the benefits the EU can provide. Um, but then moved on to, of course, this deep and special relationship. Um, but also, I think the big one is the tacit acknowledgement of a transition period. Now, we've always, Theresa May's always talked about this, the government's talked about it, but has never really spelt it out uh, mm. in black and white. The Lancaster House speech from back in January. Refers to a transition arrangement, but not in any detail. This time, we now know what government is looking for is a two-year transition period after our leaving the European Union in March 2019, but during which she now expects that all of the EU, a key, so the law, the entire uh, law of the EU, will continue to apply. During that process, yes. Now, from a technical legal point of view, that's not a surprise. If there was, there was, you know, from the, the sheer practicalities, that was the way it was going to work. Of course, for the hard Brexiters in the uh, in the Conservative Party and, and across the population, that's got some hard messages because that means continued payment into budgets at the rate we are paying now, and it means continued freedom of movement. Uh, but it does mean, of course, we. Uh, well, the idea is we maintain full access to full participation in the single market. And we are in a form of customs union, if not the customs union for that period. Hmm. So
1: I guess the next point would be, if she, Theresa May has not added any more detail on um, onto the Brexit negotiations, and I don't believe that she has, mm-hmm. what was the point? Was
0: it just to soothe some nerves? I think so. And again, lots of commentators sort of said this, you know, Okay, the speech helped in a way in that it it was a I think a slight softening of tone, or at least a softening to to accepting some of the realities we've talked about here for you know for many weeks now. But who was the audience? The European Commission, the head of the uh, the heads of state were invited, but mm-hmm. none turned up. Uh, the room was essentially packed full of UK journalists. And, and what message do you think the
1: EU was set was sending by not sending the heads of states and their senior people?
0: I think, for me, it's a case of, look, there is, a, there is a negotiation structure in place. There is a process. Yeah, that's it. And this, and isn't why a... w- this isn't part of it. So really, it was a speech for her cabinet, probably, as much as anything else. Of course, there'd been a very long cabinet meeting the day before uh, that speech, two and a half hours, one of the longest cabinet meetings ever, um, where, no doubt, Boris Johnson, Philip Hammond and, and David Davis all argued their, uh, their points in that. Mm. Uh, but really, it was a speech for them and probably for the British press, As much as it was um, to the EU. Yeah, it's odd, isn't it? Because the the
1: the the cabinet meeting, it feels to me as if the ground is now changed. Hard Brexiteers want to get get out, you know, within not within two years, but as close to two years as possible. And even the moderates now kind of just accepted. Well, it's going to be two years, two years or four years. That to me seems like the moderate version of Brexit.
0: I think so. I think at, at, at kind of that high level, I think you're right. There's, there's an acknowledgement that this, frankly, we are not going to be ready. With all the will in the world and with, you know, if you triple the size of the civil service, we are not going to be ready to be out um, in March 2019. We are going to need some kind of continuation agreement. Um, I think one of the challenges that might well emerge over the coming weeks, and I'm surprised the press didn't pick up on this much, um, there were only some of those commentators we talked about who we, we really like. David Alan Green, particularly FT, talked about this in one of his blogs. But of course, what she's asking for is a full continuation of um, the EU acquis, so single market participation, customs union, freedom of movement, payments into the budget, everything it is now, for two years after we leave the European Union in 2019. So she's not saying that we delay leaving; we're still hmm. leaving. And it, of course, it is a, as I always say—it's a matter of law now that we, we leave in March 2019. But essentially, what that means is we'll remain essentially we'll remain within the EU within the EU structures for two years. But with no MEPs, with no head of state or equivalent at the European Council, we have become worse than Norway. We have, we've genuinely become a rule taker without any influence on it. Which seems like a slightly odd position, because, you know, we've argued long and hard here for EEA after and a Norway kind of model, and people said you can't go for that. And actually, government has explicitly ruled it out, saying it's no good, we'd be a rule taker. But of course, we know that's not true for all the reasons we've talked about here before. But actually, it now appears government position is to the government uh, mandate now is to take us into a position that is essentially worse than Norway. All of the rules, none of the same, and for, and for what reason? I think it's about this continuity. Um, the the whole challenge here for the UK government, as it's kind of been pl- working its path through transition and the exit stuff, has been it's up against a hard line that essentially I don't think the Conservative Party could sell it to its backbenchers or half of its cabinet if they said what we actually want to do. Is stay in the European Union for another two years, and set a transition point out after that. While we essentially we work out what it is we want, mm. um, but essentially that's kind of what we're asking for. So we have to go to kind of meet the democratic mandate and the will of the people, whatever that might be. But we keep everything in place for an additional two years.
1: Now, just sticking with domestic politics and in particular the Tory Party, so much keeps on coming up is this cabinet split. Um, just from what you've said. And you know, as I alluded to before, you have got a difference between two years and four years. Mm. And how, how severe is this? How severe is this split? And how will it affect the Brexit process?
0: I think it's pretty severe, just from the sheer divergence of v- views we're hearing. Mm. So you know, we're now difference of twenty-four months. So. yeah, that's it. Well, I mean, we're fifteen months or so since the since the um, referendum decision, the change of government, um, and Theresa May coming into power, and the new departments being formed. Essentially, we're still no closer. For of, for cabinet having a single position. Mm. Now we talked about this a little bit last week. This is kind of politically unheard of and legalistically very difficult because cab- we we operate a cabinet government system in the UK. Um, cabinet must sign off major decisions, but actually clearly there isn't a united view. Now I think they're they're probably doing better. The Tory party is probably doing better in the last few months at keeping the worst of those arguments off the front pages, mm. despite you know Boris's big. 4,000 word epic in the telegraph actually. they're kind of managing to downplay it but I still think there are big issues and I think there are big issues in those two positions this let's just get out we don't owe Europe a penny we can trade under WTO rules again we've explored before why we are the challenges involved in all of that to this we need a transitional period we need a softer one should we actually be trying to stay in the single market anyway and not leave it are we looking to just leave the EU or leave everything to do with it um it's it's not really clear how that's going to how that's going to hold as the Tory Party comes under more and more pressure. Um, we're recording this now just after Jeremy Corbyn has given apparently a fifty or fifty-five minute speech at Labour Party conference. Um, that's been the best attended Labour Party conference in a long time. Uh, all of the delegates and certainly the momentum side of the party is delighted that everything's sort of looking better. It's, this isn't the podcast to talk about the policies that have been proposed, um, but there, gosh, there are some interesting ones in there. Um, there's all that. So labour are labour are looking happier, despite the fact that actually their own position on Brexit is absolutely as split as the sure. Tories
1: is. I mean, not not to dive in, delve into too much of Labour policy, but how do they reconcile staying in the free market, which is apparently their stated position, now, mm-hmm. with some rather odd views regarding you know industrial strategy? Say,
0: it it is odd. And, and again, I think this is where. This is where this, the, that kind of the whole concept of Brexit is opening up, um, sort of channels and grooves, and I'm using horrible metaphors here in policy making that no one's ever had to handle before. Yeah, um, mostly because we see it not only from some of the statements of Jeremy Corbyn recently about the problem. You know, the problem is he wouldn't be able, he thinks he wouldn't be able to implement a lot of the policies he'd like to implement while we're a member of the EU because that stops it. So mm. industrial, uh, from the industrial point of view it's really about financial support to companies or sectors uh, which, uh, which EU rules uh, prohibit under, uh, I forgot the, the proper phrase for it at the moment. It's essentially competition law. It's essentially competition law. Um, and he wouldn't be able to nationalise all the industries he wants to nationalise under EU law. None of that's really true. EU, EU law doesn't really care about public or private It cares about monopolies and competition. Right. So, of course, actually, you know, most of the energy, water, rail, transportation systems across most of Europe are nationalised.
1: So... There's no
0: issue with any of that.
1: So, to simplify that, would would it be correct to say something like... You can have an EDF or someone providing it, plays by the rules against who against a private provider of energy or private that, go. That's
0: on. exactly it. It's about competition rather than ownership. So th- the usual one that comes to mind is rail franchising. That's the one that often yes. sort of comes into people's heads. Um, you can't renationalise the railways because competition or privatisation franchises. Well, of course, actually, lots of across Europe, lots of the railway uh, franchises are run by nationally owned companies
1: mm.
0: but they do it on competitive tender yes so it's fine so actually if you go you know I was in Italy most recently there you have a one franchise for the high speed network one franchise for the regional network one franchise for the local they all happen to be state owned but they're all separate they can't be subsidised directly by the state There are, you know, they have to play there are subsidy rules in the same way ours happens yeah. ours are subsidised but essentially the actual commercial competition bit is an open playing thing That's what matters to the EU, not whether it's public or private.
1: Well, it would be very interesting uh, when the Labour Party comes in, a bit more scrutiny as to exactly how they model these industrial strategies with membership of of the EU. But just sticking with subsidies, I think this is quite a nice way to channel into it. There has been a story in the press press this week between Bombardier Mm. and Boeing, and I thought it was quite interesting because I know it's not Brexit related, but there are some interesting business, um, there are some interesting. Business aspects here, which maybe people can relate to via Brexit.
0: Yeah, well, the thing is, of course, these days because of you know, we, again, we've talked in lots of podcasts before about the way trade has evolved and what the WTO does now and global cooperation. On the whole, trade just doesn't hear the news anymore. Yeah, uh, you know, if you cast, you know, I guess you're probably old enough too. Cast our minds back to the nineties. You, you concepts of trade wars, of competitive tariffing, yeah. of kind seem- of block stuff coming into markets from overseas. I seem to remember. We got into a little bit of a tussle with America over Kashmir.
1: That's the last one that I remember.
0: Yeah, there was that. And then, of course, there was steel dumping from China, actually, a couple of oh, years yeah, ago. Yeah, that's yeah. probably a more recent one. So these things rarely hit the press. Um, and, of course, we, oh. yeah, we've got this this big one um, that's just hit. So we have a, we've three big players in all of this, I guess. We've got the Canadian company... Bombardier. Um, I guess most bits probably don't know Bombardier as an aircraft manufacturer. No, I think it's trains. If they know them anything, it's trains. Mm. So they've got a couple of manufacturing plants over here in the UK, but they've got an aircraft plant in uh, Northern Ireland. There is the, of course, the mighty American giant Boeing, uh, one of the world's two primary um, uh, aircraft manufacturers. Um, and there, uh, those are the, the two corporate players. And you've the three countries behind them: the US, the UK for Northern Ireland, and uh, and Canada. And what's happened here essentially is a the US has raised a dispute, saying that the only reason Bombardier has been able to has, or rather Bombardier has been able to sell some of the jets it's currently making at below cost price into the US market because of subsidies from the UK and Canada. Yes. because of government, UK subsidies to the manufacturing here in uh, in Northern Ireland, because Canadian subsidies to, to the home firm uh, back in Canada, they've been able to essentially to go in below cost. Now, of course, this is precisely what tariffs are designed to try and handle. The whole yeah. concept is, if you're going to start subsidising a, com- a company in country A, which can sell its goods into company B, and artificially compete with company B's companies who do that, country B's, sorry, companies who do that kind of thing, then you get an unfair advantage. Yes. So what we'll do is we'll slap a tariff on the goods coming into the UK to try to level the playing field. Often it's not about level the playing field. Often it's about actually tipping the balance Back in, in favour uh, so, of the home market. All countries do it. The WTO kind of regulates all this stuff. So essentially, the US has said, we think because of government subsidies, you are able to undercut us. Therefore, it's not a fair market anymore. Therefore, we get the right to impose... Full aerospace tariffs um, onto those goods coming in, which for the US it would be two hundred and nineteen percent eye-watering. Yeah, so it's actually tripling. So the cost. The
1: the surprise here wasn't so much the that they contravened t- uh, tariff laws. It was the harshness of the penalty. So presumably they think that um, there has been su- subsidy up to two hundred and
0: twenty percent. Of the aircraft price. That I don't know. I've not, I've not read the whole trade dispute that's uh, that's just been raised. Now, the big concern here, of course, is essentially this jeopardises Bombardier jobs in the UK. Yes, that's, it does. That's the, uh, the issue that's been raised from the UK. Um, because if you're going to put them into that price, they can't sell them. Those jets are now commercially viable in the US market. Those sales aren't going to happen. The manufacturing plant shuts down. 4,500 jobs, I think, in Belfast um, uh, are at risk. Now, of course, what's been interesting, I think, from the Brexit side now, is that we make those parallels, has been watching people's reaction to it. Mm. So, first of all, we've had people say, well, this is outrageous, we just levy the same tariffs back. But, of course, the UK is a member of the European Union's common commercial policy. <laughs> so the okay. UK doesn't have the power to levy tariffs. All tariffs inbound into the UK are subject to the European Union's common external tariff, which you talked about before. That's its—that's uh, the way it regulates products, the price of products. Essentially, coming into the EU market, so the UK can do nothing on its own. Okay. In this. So, whilst we're still a member of the EU, what do the EU intend to do about it? We've not heard anything yet. Uh, as we're as we're speaking now, I've not seen any comments um, from the EU at all. Apparently, she certainly uh, raised some concerns over the phone. She, sorry, being Theresa May, our prime minister, but I've uh, I've not seen anything as yet. So, what would Bombardier do from here then? And does the Brexit
1: process in any way help Bombardier?
0: No, I think it, I think probably for, at least for the short term it makes it much more complex. Mm. Um, because the truth is now, I think you know before the referendum vote, this is exactly the kind of thing where the EU would have would have the UK would have gone to the EU saying, look, we think we're going to have a trade dispute. Um, how do we start to unravel all that? Trade disputes are normally taken to the WTO. So EU and US go to the WTO and they try and hack out what all the issues are. Um, that maybe the EU does have a right, if they think they're in dispute over trade law, then you are allowed to place re- retaliatory tariffs. Mm. You can put temporary re- retaliatory, re- retaliatory, complex word for Wednesday, tariffs um, onto those goods. Now, of course, the point is, from the EU's point of view, why would it want to start doing this to specifically help out a member state that's leaving? Mm. You know, they don't want to start upsetting the apple car. There are some big discussions that yet to, have yet to be had for both the EU and the UK, and actually all other countries, as the UK leaves the European Union, about what happens to the tariff rates and about what happens to the quota rates. Because essentially you're taking the second biggest economy of the EU out. So all of those deals that were done before on the basis that the UK was part of that bloc and isn't going to be, will Be ripe for that's the countries really starting to say, Well, actually, we want to extract a bit of leverage now. Yeah, that's a really good point, actually, because a lot of these
1: deals would have been made on the assumption that they do have access to the UK market, which is fairly sizable in its own right.
0: It is, absolutely, and I think this is the challenge. And you know, I think we talked about again in a podcast or two or three ago about the, the challenge now. The UK government's ro- uh, kind of goal in all this at the minute is we just want to roll over. All of the third uh, country trade agreements that we have as a membership of the EU with all of those other countries, and they won't, and you just take them as they are and go. Mm. That's a theoretical and legalistic kind of reasonableness, but actually, you need the other countries' consent to do that. Um, and it's not clear why You know, I think we talked about we've done we, we all sorts of stuff haven't we on lemons from South Africa and yep, we've done spotty lemons yeah, chicken. lamb from New Zealand all of these things these countries are going to say well actually we've got a bit of leverage because this deal was done on the basis of a block of 300 million people in 27 countries we're now going to a block of one block of 240 million one block of 60 there are different deals to be struck here and also, the UK is going to be in a very weak disadvantage. It's going to be in a big disadvantage in these talks because we need these things sorting fast.
1: Well, I mean, if you want to, um, if you want to get one over on the UK trade wise, probably best do it now. Because yeah, you've, you've got eight, a huge
0: window, a huge window of opportunity where we, where all of the partners in the negotiation know we need this to happen fast, and that doesn't put us in a strong negotiating
1: position. Oh, just. To move on from the um, Bombardier Boeing thing, and to put a bit more colour on it, because it, it's actually a really complex story. Yeah. Um, apparently, the C Series, which is the aircraft which yeah. they're putting the tariffs on, Boeing has no equivalents. But the reason that they want to <coughs> do it is not so much to warn off Bombardier because they don't compete with them. It's to warn off um, uh, national manufacturers from in from India and China who will be coming in coming into Boeing, Boeing's markets and making things which will compete with
0: it. Yeah, and, and this again actually is, a, is an, an important point as we talk about you know, the EU and the UK renegotiating um, trade agreements is you've always got to have in mind the, this the, how the WTO, the WTO operates. Um, and it's all about levelling the playing field globally mm. as much as possible. And you've got to be very careful in lots of legal issues about setting precedent. So, yes, even though in this case Bombardier is not the challenger, the problem is, is if you allow a third country to start to come in with undercuts and you don't challenge it, essentially, if China does it in two years' time, they will be able to say, well, you've already made an exception. Yes. Bombardier and the UK did this two years ago. You didn't have a problem with that. Why do you have a problem? And with no, it? we've got
1: a direct, direct competitor. Yeah. Um. One, last, one last question on this. What actually does count as a subsidy? Is it building them a factory? Is it giving them? Uh Preferential tax, tax rates, what, what
0: counts? It's any and all of those things essentially. So it's anything which simply gives you a competitive commercial advantage. Uh, and this is the you know, this is the stuff we're talking about with Jeremy Corbyn earlier. Yeah. Can he get his industrial strategy through? So the EU operates the concept of state aid. So mm-hmm. There we are. That's the phrase I couldn't remember earlier. Uh, state aid rules so companies can only receive a certain amount of money from any government in any one in any three year period. Essentially to try and level the playing field across yeah. across the single market. So there are re, there are rules by which you can intervene and which you can support, but they're capped. Um, now, we've had sort of the Corbyn saying, well, you know, outside of all that, I'd want to do much more. Yeah, OK, fine. You might even be outside. It's hard to see it in the short term because we're going to have to maintain some form of continuity with the EU. But in the long term, we'd want to, in, to intervene much more. The huge challenge is, is the WTO will have something to say about that. Yeah, because of course the problem is, is subsidising industries essentially is a commercial advantage. So in most trade deals, there will be rules set out about commercial competition, um, because otherwise, how does a trade deal work? Yeah, you know, so imagine you know we're well now we're a week, six days now into the CETA agreement, the, the European Union Canadian agreement coming into effect. We can use that as an example. We now have free trade in a number of, a uh, uh, tariff, complete tariff free trade in a number of production uh, and manufacturing areas between those two nations. How does that work in terms of open competition if Canada, well let's use Canada as an example, yes. if Canada bungs a load of money to Bombardier so it no longer has to make the profit margins that a European one has to work. With, I mean, I mean, essentially that immediately contradicts the trade deal, so the trade deal explicitly forbids Certain levels of commercial support.
1: See, I would say the only winner here, actually, is um, the American consumer who gets cheaper airplanes.
0: Well, I mean, th- I mean, this is this goes <laughs> to the heart of what tariffs are about. You know, there's a you know a, a very open and liberal concept of economic theory would we'll always say the, the only person that matters in any of this is the consumer.
1: Yeah, I the mean, person
0: I'll... who buys is the only person who matters. Now, of course, in reality, there are wider things to think about because you, you know, we talked about this. If you open, you know, UK economy fully to the globe you know if we go with that economist for free trade paper and say no tariffs on anything, actually that's really good news for our consumers because they would be able to get much cheaper things but you would also see complete devastation across a number of industries where the uk could not compete with emerging markets Mm. depending on your own point of view and all the rest of it you'll have good you'll think that's good bad indifferent what the rest of it but it does have huge challenges for local economies that's sort of the huge challenge so if you were to say we want to do more to support free trade with sub Saharan Africa, developing countries who want to use their agriculture much more rather than our own. Let's kill all the tariffs. Great, you and I will get much cheaper coffee and much cheaper, etc. But actually you will just kill a swathe. You won't do be coffee because we don't produce yeah. it. Yeah? That's not a great example. But for those where they could compete on wheat, on, um, then you would just kill that production in the UK. Mm. That potentially has medium, short, medium, long-term effects on local economies, on those farming industries. What happens to, you, how do you support rural economies if you kill agriculture? Um, it's it all great. The best example really is kind of around the 80s and the, you know, the big change in industrial towns in the north. Yes, um, you know you can you can make the perfect case that why should the UK consumer pay? I'm making up numbers fifty pounds a ton for coal from the north of England when you can get it at thirty pounds a ton from uh, Poland from Poland or Russia this. or anywhere else. Absolutely, but. If you take all the jobs of the people in those towns away, you now have an additional cost. Mm. Now, of course, what, the, what you should weigh up is what's the difference in cost. Should we support the economies locally? Should we allow like consumers to get the benefit? You get some very complex, not only economic but political trade-offs.
1: Yes, which I think we're still we're still starting. Well, we're, we're still feeling now. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, as long as you've not heard of any tariffs on podcasts, I, I, think, I think I'm fairly fairly comfortable with a, with a tariff-free economy. Um, and let's just f- bring the focus back to you to, to Europe a second. Um, Theresa May made 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 her speech, but of course there is another side to this, which is the European Council. And Donald Tusk has given his gut reaction. Just run us through the process of what Tusk has said and how this will relate to the European Council ma- Council meeting, which I think is. Is it end of the week or...? Uh,
0: end of the month. The end European the Council's month. end of October, so we're a month away oh. from, the, uh, from the Council meeting. Um, so, essentially, both Michel Barnier, um, the Brexit negotiator of the EU, and, uh, and Donald Tusk, president of the European Council, um, have warmly welcomed the intentions of the Theresa May speech, but both have said we're still short on detail. Mm. Um, so they've said they're glad to see a, recogni- a recognition that there needs to be an extended transition, They're glad to see that there's an acknowledgement that any transition period will include full oversight of all EU jurisdictions.
1: Including the ECJ.
0: ECJ, everything, because that is the only body that is legally allowed to, uh, essentially from their point of view, to oversee European law. Um, But we still don't have enough detail. So what does this transition period look like? Exactly how do you expect it to function? What changes to law are required? That That kind of level of detail is still missing from the EU's point of view. The other one, of course, is, I think the interesting one, is they've reasserted the negotiating stance of, uh, of the EU. So, don't forget, there are three sets of negotiating objectives that we've seen. There is the what that from the European Council, so the 27 um, heads of state or heads of government um, of, the, of the other EU nations. The European Parliament has also put out its own objectives, and then there are actually the, the unified objectives, which, are, which uh, Michel Barnier has got to work with it. Now, what they've reaffirmed is, first of all, thank you for your speech, Mrs May. We, look, we now look forward to seeing how, in the negotiations, your government starts to outline the practicalities of all that. Mm. Secondly, Michel Barnier noted that he does not have, within his negotiating remit, the power to agree to a transition period. Ah, so that's never been suggested. Because, of course, the EU has been focused, utterly focused, on first objectives first. Yep. We need to get the divorce sorted out, and then we talk out later. And also, he also reaffirmed in saying that, that first of all, we'll need to go back to the European Council to get revised negotiating guidelines. And those will be drawn up once the European Union has decided whether a transition period is in its interest. Mm. So there's that sort of firm pushback saying, that's fine, everything you've said is great, and this kind of points to something we've always had problems with about the government's approach, and actually you know, all of our political uh, parties' approach, is they all talk about it as if they, they can deliver the outcome on their own. Yeah. Not that this is actually a negotiation between two sides. So, great, you have now asked for a negotiating period, draw up the papers which tell us what that looks like, and we will then consider whether it is in our interest to even start opening conversations about what that looks like yeah so that's a for me that's a big firm pushback now that is not you know, lots of the press have grabbed this this week and gone this is outrageous they're firming up and all the rest of it it's like none of it this was in the this is all spelt out in black and white in negotiating guidelines the eu published earlier this year so there's nothing new here it was referenced in donald tusk's speech the day after the referendum Uh, Fifteen months ago, it was referenced in another speech he gave around Christmas this year. It's in all the formal documents, so we've known the EU would always take this approach, which is one of the reasons really why we've been so disappointed with government reaction, or you know, on its positioning all the way through. It's like you're, it's almost like you're ignoring there's another side, and you don't know what they think when actually they've laid out very, very clearly. Um, So essentially, really, the ball is now back in the UK's court. Um, The I guess the other thing to said, of course, is he said at this stage. There, we have not made sufficient progress to move to the second half of the negotiation, which
1: is quite worrying because this is where we wanted the parallel. So we actually thought there was a bit of ground give, given here. Mm. Turns out there was none, well, or no, not yet,
0: not yet. And I think, and what the EU is saying, this is not because we're not willing, but we agreed between us, between the UK and the EU, what the order of these negotiations would be. Um, you've still not done, We've still not completed the first half yet.
1: Well, on previous podcasts, we have bemoaned the lack of knowledge in the UK about the political processes in other countries. Mm. So, here's your time, here is your chance to shine. <laughs> um, just tell me, do you think that the German election results are going to make any difference whatsoever to, to, the, Bre- to, to the Brexit process? I suspect you're going to say no. Um, but do you, do you think it's going to change
0: Germany's uh, attitude towards Europe? Um, my gut reaction is, is as, as you're right, it's a firm no to the first one. Um, and I think actually, if you travel around Europe, I spent a bit of time out there this year, and I'm, I'm sort of am re- reading reading foreign newspapers more and more. Is I think what we'll see, what will be a surprise for most UK people is to realise that it is extremely hard to find a Brexit story in any of the European newspapers, in any of the European channels. It is not on the radar. It is seen as uh, as an ancillary issue. Essentially, uh, it's something that's happening. Most of them don't want it. France is the only country that actually has a majority that will be delighted to see <laughs> the UK go, um, but it's not registering. So, in that sense, I think the the election result. I mean, first of all, we've not seen a change of chancellor. Yes, Angela Merkel has been returned for the fourth term. Um, so, I don't think there's anything there now. Where we did see a change in the in the German election results is a big rise in the share of the vote for Alternative for Deutschland. Uh, which is a right-wing party it's, you can't call them similar to UKIP because they, their political objectives are different, yes. but if you see them as you know, to the right of our Conservative Party um, some people would describe them as Nazis, some would describe them as far-right right-wing undoubtedly they, the, the rise in the AFD has really been caused specifically by, by Angela Merkel's response to the European migrant crisis uh, and the large numbers of migrants that have come into, uh, into Germany uh, since then and they're pushing back for a you know a different approach. Yeah. Now, what's interesting, I think, with AFD Alternative for Deutschland, is the parallels you've seen in both the UK, um, in the general election, in the referendum result, and in the general election result in the presidential election result I beg your pardon, in the states, is we see a few common things. We see that. It is in those areas where there is the least immigration that we see the strongest votes against immigration. It is,
1: it is always fascinating.
0: Yeah, and we see that in the UK overall. You know, the cities which have got the, you know, the, the, the utterly the lion's share of immigration all voted for Remain. The seaside towns where there is basically no immigration have got huge, strong Leave votes. We saw the same in uh, in the United States: the East and West Coasts, uh, Midwest, the you know the liberal uh, side of America. All the, with big immigrant populations, all voting Remain, Rust Belt states in the Deep South, uh, few immigrants all voting all voting Trump. Um, on that side, So you see that pattern in Germany. We see that it's it's the old East Germany, uh, which is where the largest share uh, of the vote was driven, so that bit of Germany which is still economically lagging. You know, mm-hmm. Germany spent hundreds of billions of euros since reunification in trying to level those economies up, but they're still a long way from doing that. Um, so you do see all those parallels, and the other one, I guess, which is a great parallel uh, to the UK, is the vote share. That increased vote share for AfD, uh, that right-wing party, has come broadly equally from uh, from the centre-right and from the hard left. Oh, really? So again, so you see this challenge. You see that sort of thing that actually, you know, the UKIP vote was driven primarily from two places: disenfranchised anti-European conservatives, older voters on the whole. And from the harder left of the Labour Party, that's where that That's where the uh, the sorry the Leave vote primarily came from in the UK. Well, I mean, you
1: might say, wouldn't you? In the, well, the Leave vote in the UK, there's not so much the hard left, but the neglected left. The no, Northern that's town. a good,
0: that's a good point. Yeah, um, uh, and so it is. It, you've got this thing that you've got a right wing party that is drawing support from opposite sides of the spectrum. Mm. Uh, Now, of course, that causes huge political challenges, as we see that writ large here in the UK. Um, You've got a Labour Party that's notionally at the moment supporting Brexit, albeit slightly softer, with a parliamentary party that's overwhelmingly in form of Remain, a voter base that's overwhelmingly in form in favour of Remain, but a chunk of the party that supports Leave, and a chunk of its core working class vote, if you like, that traditional Mm. disenfranchised bit, that's Leave supporting but he's also drawing its power from the, uh, the right of the Conservative Party. So you've got these two bits of the population which, if you put them on a political spectrum, are at opposing ends, have, for the first time in generations, found something that they agree on. And that's making, it, that's making life of the Conservatives here in Labour very difficult as they try to square that circle.
1: Well, Yeah, and also as, okay. as, as those two parties, or the base of those two parties, is actually getting more and more
0: polarised yeah, and we and we that's it. You know, we we've talked here before, I think, about you know the country has always been all countries are polarised. Of course, their you know their societies have different things. You have a again you know, rich versus poor, liberal versus conservative. If we say global, you know, homeless globalness, as uh, Theresa May put it, against a much more locally based community and family life, uh, left wing against right wing, Tory against Labour. All of a sudden now, you've got a new divide: Remain versus Leave. But it doesn't. But the people in that don't fall in the same way. No. As the other, it cuts straight through all of those other divisions. So you do have pro-remain I Tories just, and pro-leave Tories and pro-remain poor and pro-leave poor, etc., etc., cutting all of those different axes. And all of a sudden, this is, I think, this is, I think, the challenge for UK politics and increasing, I think, for politics in a lot of the Western developed nations is there are topics that don't fit neatly into the party structures as we've traditionally named them. Mm.
1: I actually think the Brexit split is a lot more healthy than the other splits which we are seeing in UK society because actually it is a split on something political rather than something identitarian which I think is getting no, yeah which is getting more, more and more prevalent. Yeah. Um, last bit of Euro- Euro- European comment for you. Um, I, I do feel a, a little bit for president, Ma- uh, president Macron because he's by this time his population uh, his Popularity has fell, yep. and my feeling is he's batted his time for his great European vision for when his great ally Ang- Angela Merkel has returned to power with a stonking majority. Mm-hmm. That hasn't that hasn't happened, but he has still proceeded to give
0: us his vision for Europe. Is is what he's suggesting possible? I think broadly it is, and I, th- I say that really because essentially his, the vision he outlined this week is. Pretty close to what people like Tusk have been talking about for a while. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there was a I think in the very early podcast we talked about the Five Presidents Report from the from the EU, uh, which laid out three or four different possible future paths for the right, EU. Yeah. Um, one of those, of course, was absolutely around much much tighter integration, uh, concepts of common budgets, common defence forces, integrated common politics. Um, and I think for those of us kind of outside on the you know the, the looking in and the debating side and the policy side, we've always said the EU post the recession, post the Great Recession of 2008, post the Euro Crisis 2011, 2012, and again you know we talked about people not knowing much about European politics. Don't worry, none of the none of the UK newspapers are telling you that Greece is basically exactly where it was five years ago. It's Italy is exactly where it was five years ago. Nothing has changed. In those countries, Spain is is looking better and healthier, and it's starting to recover pretty well now. But it's got a long way to go. Uh, Portugal, similarly, rebounding nicely a long way. But you know, the the Greek problem is still writ every bit as large. Why why is Um, there no?
1: I mean, there might be political kickback in Greece, but why do we not hear about it in? Relation to the EU, I
0: don't feel that we hear nearly enough about it. No, I, I, I would agree entirely, and this I think goes back to. For me, it's probably one of the reasons why so many people in the UK voted Leave. That's. I'm not expressing opinions here on 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 where I, whether that's a good or a bad thing. What I mean is actually the UK's relationship with Europe as a continent has always been slightly odd. That it's next mm. door, it's hugely important. You know, we fought to get in three times it took us to get in the European Community. We thought we you know the single market was something that we built essentially. We asked and we built for, but it's still always been kind of an other. Mm. You know, the, the UK media, the UK people have always described Europe as them. Has always described the EU as them. It's never been an us. Yeah. Um, and so European politics has just never really featured on our agenda. And it's it's one of the things that fascinates me when I'm over there. Um, so I was in Spain earlier this year. Um, you look at you turn on the television news, read the major papers. Not only, of course, are you, you know, dominated by you know, that Spanish news, obviously, <laughs> um, but you also get lots of stories around Europe. And this is major stuff. Major, you know, so it's not, you know, oh, well, you know, a, you know a, a cat's got stuck up a tree in Berlin. There's major stuff about an agricultural crisis in some of the central bits of Europe. There's major stuff about big political divides in Eastern Europe. So Poland is going through some, some very difficult political movements at the moment. Mm. Uh, possibility of suspending its judges. You know, this yes. is major, major stuff, um, which just doesn't really cotton on. But what you also see in those Spanish papers, actually, is pages and pages yeah. devoted to to what's going on in Argentina, what's going on in Mexico, what's going on in essentially the old Spanish colonies. Um, there's a much wider interest in what's going on. Actually, our papers are essentially obsessed with the UK and the US.
1: I, I, I think the expression. You know, I think The Express is still running Princess Diana stories.
0: Yeah, we, we don't actually seem to look at all this stuff, because, I mean, you know, the, the news story we talked about earlier with Bombardier and the Treaty of this must be the first time Canada has been on the front page of a UK newspaper oh, yeah. in decades. Um, you know, what, you know, name me the last major news story you heard about from Canada, or New Zealand, or... You know, it's, just, it's just not in our psyche.
1: Yeah, yeah. I, um, I think we're a lot more comfortable dealing with the Americans than we are the, the Europeans. In fact, than anyone
0: else. Yeah, and if we talk about Europe, actually, what we're mostly talking about is Brussels. Yeah, we're not yes, actually talking about to Europe. It's always about the European Union, not about you know those, those countries uh, themselves. So it's a, it's a. I think it's a peculiar. I always said. I think historically, I would have said this is a particularly UK trait. Um, I think it's you know America's in the same box. You know, America's. You, know, you, you look at America's world news. You'd be very lucky to get any news outside America at all. Yeah. Um, what is it? You know, sixty percent of Americans don't hold a passport. They've never travelled outside. Um, outside the country, it's but it's you know, it's a big, big country. Yeah. You know? so it does have different rules than that, but it doesn't look at the world in the same way. Uh, and I think you know, since kind of post-war and certainly post sort of seventies, eighties, the UK has has increasingly looked to the US and to almost nowhere else.
1: Yeah, I tend to agree with that. Right before we before we wrap up, I want you to give me a grade for Theresa May's speech and tell me if you think it has helped or hindered.
0: And then we will go home. Uh, I would say two out of ten and two out of ten. Yeah, scathing, scathing. Just because it, it didn't say what needed to be said. I think that's the thing. Has it helped? I don't think it's hindered. Actually, whilst it was bad, it hasn't. It's it, it's not made anything worse. Mm. Um, but it hasn't really moved anything forward. You know, it's detail, detail. We need the detail, um, and you know, we're going to get the negotiations stopped as time of recording tomorrow lunchtime. If we haven't got approval, if we haven't got citizens' rights, Northern Ireland border, and the divorce paper signed off by tomorrow lunchtime, we are not moving to trade negotiations in November. It will be January.
1: Superb. Right. Well, thank you as always. We'll be back next week, and we'll be back to our. Gang, is, is there a gang of three? What were we thinking of? I think
0: we're probably a gang of four. A, a,
1: a gang of four was that the the no, was that the Liberal Democrats the gang of four? It the, might
0: have been and there was and there was a, the, there was a quad at the heart of the coalition, of course, yeah, as well, well. The four, but it will be three next week. We, we will yeah.
1: definitely be a, ga, um, a gang of three again. You can find me at Jay Beardmore and Christian at GMCC underscore Christian. Uh,
0: until next week. Goodbye.